0: Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's patreo dot forward slash Bible. Thank you.
1: Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast, When reading 1 Corinthians, it is easy to mistake Paul's discussion of weakness and strength as a universal condemnation of power. On the contrary, Paul presents the teaching of the cross as a way of replacing one kind of power with another. You might be tempted to let yourself off the hook by claiming that he is replacing man's power with God's power. Well, okay, but you are avoiding the tougher question. How is God's power made manifest? In abstraction? Theoretically? Intellectually? In chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, Paul demonstrates what God's power consists of and how it is to be wielded in the church. Like the embarrassment of confession, it is neither theoretical, invisible, nor mystical. You should be so lucky. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos,
0: And this is Dr. Richard Benton.
1: And you are listening to episode 105 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Today we move right along into 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We've covered this text in the past, but look forward to the opportunity today to review this chapter, to explain it in sequence and in context of the larger whole that is 1 Corinthians. And just before we started recording this morning, you were reiterating the fact, Richard, that this letter is about the unity of the household.
0: Right. The people have to keep as their main focus the unity of the household. This is what we've been talking about all along. This is the reason for love. This is the reason for sacrifice. It's not to get a warm feeling, but to make sure that the household is run well, that the household stays in perpetuity, that people stay in the household working in harmony with each other.
1: This is not about people in the household all agreeing to a common set of philosophical statements. That's not what unity means here. This is about the economos, the steward, the chief slave, the manager of the household, ensuring, as you said, that the household runs correctly. It's about how people behave in the household. I cannot stress this enough, because the minute you say unity, someone is going to pull out a text that summarizes a set of opinions about what people should believe, and they're going to want everyone to read that statement, and that is not what Paul is stressing here.
0: It's not a signature at the bottom of a paper, yes, I agree.
1: It's making a decision to do what you are told to do by the head slave without any hesitation or debate. It's about obeying the rule that the head slave brings, which is the rule of the scroll of God's teaching let a man regard us in this manner as servants of christ and stewards again that's that word ekonomos the head slave of the mysteries of god and again the word mysteries here is not referring to the sacraments as is often implied when people read this verse out of context it is referring to the thing which needs to be explained so that it is no longer a mystery paul is the ekonomos of the household he is the steward of the household of trust in the gospel that is the household of faith and so the mystery is what does this gospel mean and how should we live it let me explain it to you the same way i explain math to my children
0: right this is the head of the house but
1: not the owner of the house
0: paul and the other teachers among him although paul later on will show how he has a unique relationship with the people here they have a duty to make sure that the house is run well in spite of not owning it. It's owned by someone else.
1: Now, in verse 2, he says, In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards, of those who would bear the title economos, that one would be found trustworthy. Not if the people trust him or if even he trusts him. It's
0: whether his boss says he's trustworthy or not. If I have a job and the people on my team don't like me, it doesn't matter. They can't fire me. Only my boss can can fire me.
1: That's why the priest is assigned by the bishop. Now, if the bishop chooses to solicit input from the community, that's his prerogative as the bishop. The community cannot volunteer. And this is very difficult in a democratic society, in a Hellenistic society. We really don't see the difference between the average layperson and the bishop. There is a difference. I can't help you if you don't see the difference. It's not an ontological difference. It's a functional difference. The people
0: can't tell the bishop, oh, by the way, we removed the priest. They can't do that. The priest is there as long as the bishop decides he's there. Even if you crucify him, he's still your
1: pastor. He's still your priest. Until the bishop assigns another priest. This is the point. You don't have the power to make it otherwise. So what Paul does is he says he has to be a
0: trustworthy economos and then immediately he says no one gets to decide whether I'm trustworthy except God except the one who assigned me. For I am
1: conscious of nothing against myself yet I am not by this acquitted but the one who examines me is the Lord. So you can't judge me, I can't even judge myself, and even if I think I'm innocent it's immaterial. And the nice thing about this verse is that everyone thinks that they're basically a good person. I can't stand this Minnesota expression. Everyone's basically a good person. That's not what I read in scripture. What I read in scripture is everyone's basically a monster and they need to be told how to correct their behavior so that their inner monster isn't unleashed on the world therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time but wait until the lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts and then each man's praise will come to him from god that is an ominous statement because the scriptural god that we encounter in the pages of this book does not typically bring praise when he appears this reminds me again of this broader point that was made by the preacher in jerusalem in ecclesiastes when he explained again and again that you don't see the whole picture you might even know the criteria by which god will judge you which you do because it's set forth in writing but you can't even see the whole picture about yourself let alone your neighbor If Paul won't judge himself, on what basis do you say that you're basically a good person or so-and-so is basically a good person?
0: What does that mean? Well, it reminds me of Matthew 5 and Matthew 6 where what people do piously, they're supposed to do in secret because God will recognize what they do in secret, but other people won't. If you're actually praying and fasting according to what Matthew writes, then no one will know if you're fasting or praying, you're going to look just like the people who don't fast and pray. The people who don't give alms because you don't even know yourself you're giving alms. This is the point is that from the outside, you can't tell what one's piety or devotion is. Only God can know. So whether I'm trustworthy or not, is not up to you to decide. It's not even up to me to decide. I'm here, I'm your guy, I'm in charge of these mysteries, which is the only teaching you've gotten, which is the only reason this exists as a household anyway,
1: so you're just going to have to trust me. I'm running the show here. So you can take it or leave it, and the beauty of this setup, which is again how the gospel incorporates the Roman household into the content of the Gospel. We've said this before. It's an important point that I'm stressing in my own writing. It's not simply a matter of these being the trappings of Roman culture, which is the way neoliberals talk when they emasculate God. Paul is showing you that the content of the structure of the Roman household is a part of the message, because just as you can take or leave the instruction of the Economos, you can take or leave the instruction of scripture. Now, if you walk away from the household, you'll starve to death in the Roman Empire. You're not an individual if you're not a paterfamilias. The same is true in the household of faith. You're not an individual. Now, it's difficult for people to see that because you can walk away from the commandments of God and live a happy life and function just fine. But that's not the point. It isn't about whether you live a happy life or whether you die. It's the metaphor of life and death and the choice you make to place your trust in the instruction that the head is bringing to you. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes. And he's saying, I'm speaking in figures. This is my point about these examples. So that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written. Such an important statement, something I refer to often, that Paul is saying explicitly here that you are bound by the scroll of god's teaching you cannot go out of bounds in this regard if your teacher is the head slave that makes you a lesser slave of the same teaching and whatever the teaching is saying whenever it's saying it if you surrender yourself to it your ego becomes a non-factor everybody has an ego the question is do you have an ego problem I want to stress this. There's a difference between an ego and an ego problem. If you are drawing breath, you have an ego. But are you the slave of your ego, or are you the slave of the rule that the economos brings? This is important, and oftentimes in Christianity I see that people imagine that being a Christian is acquiring a certain type of personality. I disagree, because if that were true, why would DNA produce so many different types of human beings if we're all supposed to be the same? Paul is saying, whatever you are, just don't exceed what is written and you'll all get along just fine so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Well, I think you're too loud. I think you're too kind. I think you're too mean. Whatever your opinion is of somebody, it's immaterial.
0: God is going to come and show what is hidden from you because the point is you don't understand the big picture. You don't understand how it all works. And this is what Paul is doing in order to drive home this point of unity in the community.
1: For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And this is the point he makes later in this section when he emphasizes his fatherhood. Paul begat you out of nothing, you Gentile, you Roman occupier. Let's say you listen to the teaching you figured out the best way of
0: acting based on the experience and what seemed to work. And you say, but so-and-so is not acting like me. Well, they must be wrong, right? No. They heard the teaching. They know what's practical. They know what works. And they decided also. What did you figure out that wasn't given to you? And what makes you
1: think that that other person didn't receive the same thing? Yes, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? I figured it out. How come he can't figure it out? Which is not true. If Paul didn't come and whip you with the Torah, you would be still just a Roman. So what's your problem? Or a Jew, or whatever you are, that's the point. You are already filled, and this is where he starts laying in to the theologians and the philosophers and the pious, You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, and here he's being sarcastic, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. After he just spent three chapters explaining the difference between God's kingship and God's power and man's power. If he comes back around and says, I want to be powerful in human terms like you, he is shaming you. He is emasculating you he is frustrated because they're more interested in their own glory wrought by their cleverness than they are in the simple truth of the gospel, which is that you have to bathe the elderly, clean up after them when they soil their pants, that you have to go hang out with homeless people, that you have to bear the burdens of one another. That is not a lofty, proud, intellectual glory. That's the dirty work of the gospel. I
0: am so smart. I got this figured out. That person, I don't know how they can act like that. They don't have it figured out. I need to go and correct them. I need to force them to act in the correct way. I need to make sure that they're doing things correctly. That means that you're not only the judge, you're the lawgiver, and you're also the judge who decides what's going to happen to the person.
1: You meet out the penalty to the person too. It's like an egotistical person who fancies themselves a victim. And comes up with elaborate stories about why everybody is against them and hates everybody and shuts everybody out and fulfills the inverse of what Paul is calling for here. This person has built a mental empire of ingenious reasons and principles and arguments and excuses and the more elaborate the empire of thought becomes the more alienated they are from their neighbor the more alienated they are from the instruction to take care of people. You do not need to be intellectual to do the will of God. And the fact of the matter is, your intellect usually gets in the way because your intellect is self-justifying. So Paul is declaring war on their intellect. And this is painful for people to hear because we like to fancy ourselves intellectual Christians. But this is a problematic way of talking about what it means to be a slave in God's household. For I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world. And this is technical terminology. He's referring to the Roman theater. They are the spectacle to the Romans, thrown to the wolves, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. This is Paul, their father in the gospel speaking. I need to really stress this point because we Americans don't feel ashamed, really ashamed when someone's father or mother is put to shame because we're all individuals. But in a Roman setting, if your father is put to shame, it's no different than in an ancient Near Eastern setting if the tribal sheikh, if the head of the community, the patriarch, is put to shame. Everyone is put to shame. If Sarah is put to shame, it's a shame on all the women in the clan. So if Paul here is telling you that he's being put to shame, you should be hiding in your cubicle and hoping no one stops by to talk to you because it's embarrassing that Paul is being made a fool and a spectacle. And he's contrasting it with here are the people who are
0: saying who should be doing what and how should they be acting and we won't associate with them because they act like this and they do that thing and we don't like that and they're spending all their time as busybodies deciding who's in and who's out and they're making a decision from on high and he says, look at us. We're the ones who are the lowest of the low and we are the
1: ones who are put here to run the show. The kids are debating who should clean the house and the mom and the dad walk in and say, I'm going to clean it. Now, kids are stupid. They don't feel ashamed. But in normal societies, you're trained not to be stupid despite yourself. And you should be embarrassed when your dad cleans the house because you're not getting up off your rear end. This is what's happening here. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. Again, strength? What kind of strength are we talking about? Not God's strength in the context of the previous chapters. Which kind of honor? Is it the honor of the cross or is it the honor of the Roman Empire, which puts Judea under its boot in arrogance? To this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless and we toil working with our own hands. Again, if you are scriptural, you should be embarrassed if the priest sweeps the floor of the church hall. You should not do as Americans do and say, oh, look how humble he is, isn't that nice? Shame on you. You should be embarrassed. And if the priest wants to sweep the floor, he should do it when no one's in church. He should not do it on display. Because if you do it on display, you are leading by example, which means that God is not the head of your church. You have to wake up and pay attention. You're better off being a jerk as a priest than sweeping the floor so the people can see that you're one of the gang.
0: Since Paul has come to preach only Christ crucified, he is bringing this idea into practical terms. He's saying, the one who is the Son of God, the Messiah, is the one who was on display as humiliated and killed. Us, as apostles, we're one step up from that. We haven't been killed yet. We haven't been crucified yet. You guys... You're way down the ladder of God's glory, of God's honor, because you're still arguing about what are ways that you can still appear prestigious in your community. How many of our churches put the people who offer the most money, that offer the most stuff, who are the most upstanding in the community as the best members of the community? This is upside down. And where do they think the divisions come from? This precise treatment.
1: The one who treats the priest most nicely is the one with the most prestige. That's why I love the Russian tradition of taking pews out of churches in North America. Because then no one can come in and claim the best spot in church. I love that. I don't love the piety of proving you can stand for two hours. Big deal. People stand at rock concerts. I love the fact that no one can claim a space in church for exactly the point that you raise, Richard. I mean, some churches, they have coffee hour, and
0: I've seen this happen in churches, where someone comes off the street to come and eat during coffee hour, and everyone gets uncomfortable. Oh, you should have to go through the liturgy first before you have the meal. And this is the way that we can distinguish who is the best in the group. And then the church goes and says but we all love each other. We're a great family, we're a great community. And here someone comes off the street to eat with you and you shun them and you say you don't have divisions. Oh no, we all get along. No, the divisions are between you and all the outsiders who if they come in and they dare to do things in a different order than you, they get slammed or get slammed in the Midwestern way, which is ignored.
1: (laughs) Well, exactly, it's the passive aggressiveness. And here Paul is numbering himself among the ones who are slammed in these situations. When we are reviled, he says, we bless. So he's saying, okay, I'm now in the situation of the outcast, I'm the one who's reviled. But when that happens, I bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become the offscouring, the scum, the refuse of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. The runoff of the Roman latrine is what he's saying. The toilet waste. And he ties together in this chapter, the first
0: part with this part. Don't forget, this is the same one who said he's the servant of Christ, the economos of the mystery of God. And then he's saying, and we are the toilet waste. Yeah. He ties these together because if you are not one, You're not the other. And you have been so happy with what you've been able to figure out about everyone else in the community and who fits and who doesn't and who's acting correctly and who isn't. And us, everyone
1: is unanimous. We don't act correctly. We don't look right. According to their standards. Now, what's interesting is that Paul here is boasting and this kills people. People want to hear this as though Paul is a polite Midwesterner, oh, I'm such a sinner poor me my life is hard he's not playing the victim here and he's not being modest he's sticking it to the man he's coming at you with the full power of the gospel in glory but it's the glory of the cross and he is shaming you with the cross he wants to make sure that you feel so small that after you have heard this proclamation announced, you would be afraid to whisper above the volume of a mouse fart. This is like the priest coming in and saying to the wealthy
0: donors in the community, I went to school while you're out making business, making lots of money. My family had to go through everything I went through so that I could go to school to learn how to be a priest. And then I had to move from one parish to the next because everyone didn't like hearing the gospel. And now you come in, you donate a big check, and everyone is supposed to applaud you. Is this what's supposed to happen? What about the families of the people who can barely get their kids up in the morning, whose car will hardly start in the morning because it's so cold outside and their car is so
1: old? Why am I supposed to thank you? This is why I love the tradition of my father's church in a very poor Coptic village in the Nile Delta, In the small Venice, it's called Fisha Asura. In the church, they have a small money box in the back. If you want to give money, there's no tray. You don't put money in the hand of the priest because this is letting the left hand know what the right hand is doing. There's no tray that gives status to the wealthy in the community and brings shame to the poor in the community. If you have money to give, you put it in the box when no one is looking. And we are not serious about this anymore. And we do pander to the wealthy because we are more concerned with the roof over our head than we are with the scroll in the hand of the economos.
0: And here is the economos with the scroll saying,
1: I am poorer than
0: the poorest people in your community. I'm more hated by society than
1: the people you hate the most in this community. Where do you get off making yourself a king? I do not write these things. Now he's speaking as a father does after he shames you. Look, son, I'm not writing this to shame you. It's a nice way of saying, look, I love you. I'm not interested in just beating you down. I don't want to just make you feel bad. There's a point to this. I am making you feel bad, and I am shaming you. It's like when a parent yells, look, I don't want to yell at you, but Dad, you just did. Well, but that's not my point. (laughs) Now comes the point. But to admonish you as my beloved children, meaning this is unto instruction. It's not shaming to Paul's glory the way the paterfamilias shames you in a Roman household. It's shaming to God's glory. Now here, of course, the psychologist will come forward with a resume of people who complain about their parents. And explain to me how terrible it is because what if paul were just like any old patra how do you know the difference father mark and here's the beauty of scripture paul may just be another roman patrician who's a monster what does it matter it's an opportunity to obey the commandment he's wielding if paul is a monster He'll have to face the judgment, which is what he said at the beginning of the chapter. Why are you concerned with whether or not the person actually wants to be mean on purpose? If you're under Scripture, their cruelty is useful. If
0: he's the servant of the mysteries of God, then you're getting the teaching. I tell my kids this all the time. I don't care if you like your teacher or not. I don't care if they're a good teacher or not. How much are you learning? Correct.
1: If you're not learning, that's your problem because they gave you a book. And here, Scripture is giving an opportunity. You can learn from anyone. I just read this beautiful instruction pamphlet that Dr. King wrote after they desegregated buses. And it was an instruction to any members of the black church who got on buses in Montgomery. He said, look, even if a white person physically assaults a black person, you don't overcome that assault by pushing back and fighting back. Don't go to their defense. He said it plainly. Just keep the peace and pray and trust that love will overcome. Where did MLK get this? He got it from Paul. Because this is what Paul is saying here. And Paul is assuming the face, as God does in the Old Testament, he is assuming the face of the oppressor to you. Imagine a Jew and a rabbi coming to the Jewish community and saying, the Romans got it right. Imagine how difficult a pill that would be to swallow. It would be like a priest going to the Palestinians and saying, you know what, everything the Israelis are doing is terrible. But in the way that they run their military, we have an opportunity to see how God runs his household. Now, their military is committing evil deeds, but we're going to run you like an Israeli military, and you're going to do what God says. That's what he's doing here. Imagine. Imagine the gospel to the church in Palestine Incorporating the hierarchy of the Israeli military In the content of the gospel That is the force of the Torah That is the face of Nebuchadnezzar To the people of Israel and the king in Jerusalem And that's how scripture works For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ And here he's talking about pedagogues Again, it's it's the hierarchy He's saying that Ultimately, it doesn't matter what your catechists are telling you. It doesn't matter what your instructors are telling you, because you have one Father. There are many pedagogues, but you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your Father through the Gospel. And here he uses two words for Father. One refers to him as the pater, which is analogous to the Roman patrician, but he also uses the word progenitor in Greek. Which means that before Paul, there wasn't a you with respect to God's teaching. And this has a lot of weight because you don't exist without God's teaching because you're passing away. I
0: became your progenitor through the gospel. I became the one who fathered you through the gospel. And this is unrepeatable. That's the point. You can't become the father. You can't because the only way to become the father is to give birth. So how do you become the father to someone who's already there?
1: Not possible. Now, if you're a Hellenist, you believe that you were floating in the clouds and you took on flesh because you're a god. And you believe that you're eternal with or without your dad and with or without children because you're a god. So what Paul is saying here flies in the face of all of that. He's saying you are nothing. Which is just carrying on the same theme of Galatians. You're nothing without your father.
0: And he's also stressing his difference, the different status he has compared to them. I am the one who begot you through the gospel. You aren't going to sit with me at the table and we'll decide together how the gospel should be taught. It's not possible. In the same way that a father can ask his son, what's the best
1: way to handle your sister? Your nothingness is a building block in the argument, to your point. The nothingness of the child isn't the point. It's a building block in this argument that puts you in the position to be under the teaching. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Now here, it's not role modeling. It's setting a standard you can't reach. You have to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, not perfect as your priest is perfect when he sweeps the floor of the church hall. Seek what is dishonor in human's eyes. Well, right, and if that's the case, there is no human example. So Paul is setting a measure you can't reach. He's not modeling behaviors. You have to deprogram your tendency towards idolatry. If we go about modeling each other's behaviors, we are the blind leading the blind, like teenagers giving each other advice. You have to model the teaching. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will... Remind you of my ways which are in Christ.
0: So there's no modeling. Paul's not there. You just have to listen to Timothy. Who's reading who's gonna, the letter to you. Who's
1: going to be telling you how Paul acted. Right. So we're talking about the content of the letter. Just as I teach everywhere in every church, meaning it's the letter that's teaching. Now, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. So Paul now is functioning as the coming Lord. You have my letter. And instead of being afraid that I might come to see whether or not you're following the letter... I could appear at any time, just like Jesus Christ in judgment, you're standing around congratulating yourselves on how erudite you are in your theology. Well, and this is also, he's sending Timothy. And which is, they, which oh, is a mercy. Yeah, but he's saying, but the
0: people can say, oh, it's just Timothy. It's not Paul. But he's saying, I'm sending Timothy so he can be me for you. And you better hope that it's just Timothy for as long
1: as possible, because if Paul comes, you're done. So you treat Timothy as if he's Paul. Timothy's your test. So it may be ultimately that the priest isn't the bishop, but if you mistreat the priest, you are mistreating the bishop, and when the bishop comes, you're going to have problems in the community. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, meaning even Paul doesn't know the day or the hour when the judgment comes, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant and here is the beautiful punchline, not the words of those who are arrogant but their power he's not coming to see who is meek and mild because we're supposed to be meek and mild like jesus he is coming to discern whether you are exercising human power or exercising divine power
0: and the way you can tell is if you treat your older brother timothy correctly because he is beloved by me and faithful to me this is how i can tell how arrogant you are will you treat someone who is not me as if he is me because if that's the case then maybe you have a chance you might be able to treat me as if I were God and then you would be able to treat God correctly
1: and the joke here is on us in North America because we don't respect submission but the one who submits to their senior becomes more powerful than the individual can imagine this is the mystery that's being explained it's counterintuitive but submission makes you powerful. Paul is weak in human terms, but he is powerful in a way beyond your understanding as a progenitor in the gospel. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, and here he's referring to human words, not to the teaching of the scroll, the words of the sophists, the philosophers. It does not consist in words, but in power. Jesus Christ was raised in power. Paul is coming in power against the Roman Empire.
0: But it's a power that undermines your understanding of power. I'm just going to keep repeating this because this is what Paul is trying to reiterate.
1: What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? It's up to you. You you, can choose. (laughs) You can choose. Either can function according to God's will. And if you submit, you're going to make it easier for all of us including me, because although you think I'm a monster, I would rather just sit down and have a cup of coffee and talk about the weather.
0: It hurts my throat to yell at you so much. (laughs) Thank you very much, Dr. Thank Thank you, you, Father. Have a good week. Thank you.
1: You've just heard the Bible as Literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.